All righty, we're on the clock. Everybody, thank you for tuning into the Barbell Nerds podcast. Today, Will and I host Fergus Connolly, Dr. Fergus Connolly, my apologies, uh, the sports performance consultant and good friend. Fergus, welcome to our little podcast. Guys, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. We've been talking about this for a few weeks now. Yeah, yeah. Right as uh, the idea came from Will and I just to kind of collaborate on this little something, uh, I, I knew you're one of the first names that came to mind as being very excited to, excited to chat with just because of your history, your background, our friendship, and uh, just how open you are to conversation. So again, thank you for spending the time with us. No, no problem at all. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself. You know yourself better than anyone on the planet. So uh, Spark Notes version, we've got a lot to talk about. So keep it whatever you want to uh, share with. No, I guess um, I was talking to somebody actually the other day and they were just asking me about what I did and where things started for me. And I think there's two things. I'm just really fascinated by human performance. And obviously I started in team sport and then led to other things military and business. I'm just I'm fascinated by humans and how we can make, um, you know, not humans better, but better humans. Because you can make small fixes to people, but how do you make like people just better, work better as team, society? And that's really been, you know, my passion and interest. And it's just taken me on a journey. It's kind of like, uh, for me, I guess, it's kind of been like, you know, when you've got this tricycle and you take the brakes off it and you just see where it goes. And that's just been the journey. Like, I've ne never had a, I tell people this all the time and they don't believe me. But I never had a plan. Still don't have a plan. For me, it's just a journey of trying to learn more and trying to help people. I truly, honestly, and selfishly, I get so much value from helping people solve problems and doing things. That's really what, like, that's what I, that's the selfish part. It's quite the, uh, quite the resume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like I mean, I've been, I've been fortunate to work around the world. Yeah, I work in Premier League and rugby, NFL and college and whatever. Yeah. But at the core of it all, it's actually trying to, to help people. Like even last night, I was working with someone who was working, nothing to do with sport, business and person trying to manage something. And, you know, after two hours, you leave, you go home, you get a text the following morning or this morning you know, thanking you for being able to help them see things clearer. And that, that to me is, that's where I get reward. Very cool. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into some, uh, some very wonder, very talks about questions, very uh, performance related questions. Will, I know you got one right off the bat for man. Yeah. So Fergus, I think the biggest, I think, uh, general overall takeaway that I've gotten from your work um, is that when it comes to team sports um, or just competition in general, the goal is winning. It's all about winning. Um, like you said, finding solutions to problems and figuring out um, the best way to get a successful outcome. And I think, I guess, I don't know where I'm really going to go with this, but when I think of myself as a strength and conditioning coach, um, I work with basketball players, volleyball players, and tennis players and as a strength and conditioning coach we're generally with your four coactive model we're generally in that physical um, part of that model and 
I guess when, where does strength and conditioning go wrong generally? <laughs> um, because obviously you take a holistic approach to performance. Um, you got uh, physical, psychological, tactical, technical, and then you also have the health component of the athlete. Um, and I guess my question is, where does, where do you see the biggest issue is um, when it comes to specifically the strength and conditioning component um, falling into that model? Yeah, I think, listen, so I, when I started getting interested in sport, like I was playing Gaelic football in Ireland and I was, I was struggling. I wasn't that good. So I would read everything that I could on strength and conditioning. And, you know, years later then when I was finishing up, I went to, to visit like Charles Poliquin and learn from him. And, <clears throat> and you think early on, okay, it's strength because I'm not fast enough. And then you say, well, how do I get faster? Well, yeah, I got to get stronger. And so you get, you get strong. I was really, really strong when I was younger. Everybody was strong when they were younger, but, but I wasn't getting fast or then I was running out of fitness. Like you mean, and so then you, you go, okay, I got to study endurance running. And, and so you, you end up like going for two mile runs and, or two hour long runs and stuff. Like you're trying to figure these things out. And it's, you slowly come to the conclusion, even when you're at your fittest and best, you still then are struggling with skill development. And so, and anyway, so in order to solve, like you said, it's really about winning. Like you start to realize, okay, well, maybe it's psychology. And, and eventually you come to the conclusion, it's not about one of those things. It's about how they all work together. Now, our, the, the industry, strength and conditioning, is a brilliant industry. You get some incredibly bright people. And I actually would think as strength and conditioning coaches, one of the greatest qualities is their dedication to continuous learning. I, there are very few industries or groups um, that I've come across in any sphere that have that mindset. But one of the things that I think it has to be tempered with is recognizing how well we work with the other groups because we're, we really learn so much about it um how well we work with other groups and also just broadening our skill set you know in terms of our ability to communicate for example because it doesn't matter if the world's best strength coach if you can't communicate it maybe to your assistants or you can't manage people or you can't think critically about you know i'm following this tra this track or this thing like um you know last night uh, dan path who's been huge friend and colleague of mine but like I mean <laughs> we're talking about this particular aspect of fatigue monitoring and like seven or eight text messages back and forth this is a guy who has done so much and he's still trying to solve the problem like we're he's still challenging and like at the, you know I remember one of the texts was Dan hang on I need a minute to, to sit down and process all of these ideas and, and the, you know but we it's that beautiful mindset about solving problems and thinking outside the box that's where we can make great progress. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, focus and be specialized, but we also need to recognize that we have wonderful um, ability for growth in looking at the other areas and how well we can complement them. Back to what you said at the beginning, if your team doesn't win, are you a good strength coach? I Yeah, that's the million dollar question, right? Like, uh, have you figured out a way to uh, accurately evaluate coaching? You know what I mean? 
I think that's the million dollar question. <laughs> yeah, so I, there's a really good there's a really good video. I'll send it uh, I'll send it to you. You can share it with your listeners. Somebody I came across it. Um, it's Steve Jobs, and somebody somebody asked him a really difficult question. It's very long. It's years ago. He's obviously very young, and and he describes it was a really difficult, actually abusive question that he was being asked on stage. And, and he doesn't get angry, but he talks about how we have to start with the customer and the problem, not the technology. And we have to develop a solution. We as strength and conditioning coaches or sports scientists, we have to start with the problem and the customer. The customer are our athletes. And the problem is winning games. We don't start with you know, a formula, force platform, a jump or whatever GPS unit. We start with the problem and figure out what's needed and we solve that. That's, and that determines whether you're a good coach. I think, you know, winning games and it's actually the definition I would use is are you making the team better and improving? Because you don't control the opponent. And so you could say the number of trophies, but that's not fair. You know, if you take over the Lakers in the morning, um, and, you know, you get a slight head start, you know, but, but if you take over another NBA team and you're improving them, you know, now you're making them better. Now you're coaching, you're coaching well. Um, so I think that's the only thing you can do is, are you making your players better? That, that's all that, that's the only assessment. And yeah, and then you're going to have to allow for some subjectivity with that evaluation within that question, right? Like I love to quantify everything, but I just, it's, it's just logistically isn't necessarily possible all the time. And I think I just, I struggle with all the time answering that question. Am I providing value to uh, these athletes that can provide more value to the team? And it, it just, they're also intertwined. And like, I could, I could improve a basketball player's physical qualities, but he, he could still be the third, the third guy off the bench and only play seven minutes in a game. And like, did I really do anything? I, I don't know the answer to that. It's just, it's tough. Yeah. So, um, like, you I mean a number of, you know, like, so, so I, I consult for, for a number of teams and that, that question keeps coming up time and time again, even in the NBA now in the bubble, you could teams who have, um, you know, who will send data looking for, you know, analysis or input, but to your point, the data alone doesn't tell the whole picture. And that, that's one, this um, problem to solve, I'm so glad you brought it up because you can't, we can't measure everything. Um, I was just on a call actually with one of the heads of departments of Amazon. We were just discussing Halo. And so Halo, this, this new, this new uh, technology they have will now assess emotion based on your voice. So now we've got another quantifiable metric yeah. that we can use. But I actually, I'm actually more excited about that because now we're starting to measure emotion. Nobody's ever looked at emotion before. This is That's exciting. Cool. It's a wonderful opportunity to at least, but, but it's not, I don't care whether actually it's actually measuring it or whatever. That's sort of the fact now people are going, Oh, we can, I've never considered emotion before, you know? So it, to your point, like, what, where do you stop measuring, you know, where and how many things do you measure? Those are the, those are the questions. Those are the challenges that we have um, moving forward. And I think some organizations, some teams measure too many things and don't take 
that step back and look at the person. Yeah, and do you have you in in your experience, whether you're a consultant or a coach, or whatever you've had so many roles um, over the course of your career. Have you found any metrics that you think have worked really well for some teams? Um, so the way that I I read every team, I still come back to on the physical side. I start with volume, intensity, density, and contact. And for, just on the physical side. And what I try to do is take the field and take the gym and try and put them under those verticals. Because if I, if I can know what volume is, and so let, let's take, take a practical example. So you take a, take a running back at, a, at an NFL team. You know what they're 100%, um, or you know what, you know what they're going to do in a game. Uh, on average, what's the most, sorry, they're going to volume they're going to do. Set that at 100%. Everything in practice then is as a percentage of that in practice. So now I know what the game is. Now I know everything then is 100%. Now I know that, say, a Monday is 20%, Tuesday is 40, 50, 100% in the game. And, it, and it, there may be some days that practice is 110% of the volume. And that's fine. But you, it, the 100% is always what's done on game because that's the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. Then when we look at the gym, we can go, okay, um, the volume of work might be the total amount of weight lifted. So now I've got, I have, but I put that as a percentage now. Now I know it's, and now what you get is on a day, we're going to do 20% volume on the field, but in the weight room, it might be 60%. And if we keep everything as percentages, it simplifies things. The goal is to make it as simple as is necessary. I can make things infinitely more complex and do that that's easy but can i simplify it and then the real secret is can i communicate that with the coach so he and i are on the same wavelength rather than separating ourselves and overwhelming coaches like if we can bridge those gaps and i and i do think that if we don't bridge the gap between strength and conditioning sports science and coaching we either intimidate or we make ourselves irrelevant yeah and so th that's you know long term that's the challenge that we, we have. I do, I do believe the sports performance coach will be titled an assistant coach at some point, as long as that particular assistant coach can do that, can convey that coaching, can break down the actual sport itself, reverse engineer, whatever you want to call it, so that way they can communicate it, comprehend it better for the uh, sport coaches and simplify. I think that was the biggest, the, the best word you used. If you could take the game and simplify it, break it apart to its most regressed states, you can train that, and then that's how you improve performance from a, at least from a strength and conditioning standpoint. Then you add the skill component too, which is a whole other conversation. Yeah, but so sometimes we we look at coaches, and we sometimes are. Um, we don't give them enough credit for what they're doing, you know, from a tactical perspective and the management. And I think that's something that we should spend more time, like trying to understand what they're trying to do, really understand how they think. So for example, um, one of the things I've said to many, you know, strength coaches are listen to the language the coach uses. So if he doesn't use volume, maybe he uses, um, I don't know, time or whatever, or work rate, use his language. Now you've bridged that gap straight away. Like you, it's easier sometimes for you to change, use the language he uses. You're still doing the same thing. You know what it is. 
Like it might be volume for you, but also on the layer below that, then you decide what metric is going to be volume. Might be time, might be distance if you've got GPS. You know, sometimes time is the best measure of volume. You know, then you can use time and what you can say is, well, density then is the number of reps. Is the, sorry, density is the total time divided by the number of reps. So if somebody does 60 minutes, 10 reps, and that, it's an approximation, okay? And then if you want to say to the coach, look, I want this to be, a, um, I want it to be as, to have as little frequency as possible, you tell them, just don't do consecutive reps. That would be good for the guys to keep them fresher. So, you know, you just give them as much rest as possible. Keep it as simple as possible because the coach is trying to come up with plays and schemes that are infinitely more, your job is to make it as simple as possible to work and bridge that gap with them. That's where I see incredible opportunity for improvement rather than worrying about, or rather than getting bogged down in the detail of, you know, some of these other things that we sometimes get too distracted by that are not making a difference to the scoreboard. Yeah, and uh, to piggyback on that, um, talking about details that might not matter so much, um, I guess this is more of a more of a sport coach kind of topic than strength and conditioning. Would you for for collegiate athletes and professional athletes? Um, I guess from what you've seen or your experience, do you think there's probably a little bit too much time spent on um, perfecting? skills or technique perfecting technique with skills that might not always I don't, I don't necessarily like the word transfer but transfer to playing a game that doesn't include all of the other components of a game like the perception action component um the component of reading uh, um body language from your opponent reading body language from your teammates um yeah i just could you touch on that maybe a little bit yeah so if you so one of the, I'm a huge fan of like, you know, taking a moment in the game and sitting down and, and, you know, as a strength and condition group and looking at it and asking, why is this player better than someone else? So, yeah, like take, uh, you know, take a Christian McCaffrey, like, I mean, as he, as he moves, right. He's seeing pattern shifts and things that he, Probably in some cases, even like with Frank Gore at the Niners, it was the same thing. Yes, Frank explained it. He, he couldn't explain it because he's living in the moment. He's in the zone. Yeah. And he's seeing shapes, patterns, timing. And what he has had is he's had millions of reps at very high quality. And he's reacting to those. So there's that's going on. Then he has his body, his strength, his power and all that. So it's when that comes together. Now, how do we train that? That's instinct and habit. It's not... They're not thinking, like Christian Caffrey, Frank Gore, they're not thinking. You don't have time to think. You have to rely on instinct and habit, intuition. And so you can only train that by playing very high reps in practice at as close to the quality of a game. It's never going to be a game. So you have to create those scenarios. Now, let's take another step back. In order for that to be trained as a memory, that the quality has to be so rich and it has to be as close as possible. We obviously have to give them as much rest as possible in between every rep. And then we take a step back from that. Now we have to make sure that when the player steps on the field for practice or on the court, they're refreshed, rested, 
and they're obviously strong and, and fit enough to execute those. Now we get back to the weight room, we take another step back. Yeah. How do we make sure? And so that's my process. That's how I look at it. And, but the key starts with quality reps in practice. And so if I have a choice between training someone in the weight room or having them fresh to execute a quality rep, now every strength coach in the world is going to fall over and hear this. I always go with the rep, the quality practice rep. Because that's the only thing that is holistic. That's the only thing that is everything encompassed. Everything we do is to support that quality rep and practice to allow them to play the game. So if you have time to focus on these other things, go for it. But again, now the question becomes, what do we prioritize? Yeah. That's ultimately. And so the strength coaches, it's really a case of you know, taking a step back and going, What's, what's important now? Mm-hmm. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, it does. I just, I, so I played football in college and I just remember like in practice, it was kind of the same drills over and over again. And it was all about taking a certain step as you read the offensive line or making sure you open your hips up when you, when you drop and like, your, your book t- kind of talked about how um, letting, letting success lead technique and not letting tech- technique hopefully leading to success. And it, it just makes me think that when, when we're doing a bunch of drills and we're emphasizing technique, um, like for, for example, uh, we'll talk about football. A linebacker has to go make a tackle. I think a lot of times they're just being an athlete and they're going and kind of wrestling a guy to the ground. But you look at uh, tackle football starting with fourth graders. There's always like hit with your hit with your right shoulder onto their left shoulder or step through the body in a certain way. And then, but then you watch game film and it never happens that way. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just, you are reacting. You're taking a specific angle that, whatever the angle you need to take for success to happen. It's just like what what your book said, let success dictate the technique, not practice technique and hopefully lead into success. Yeah. So there's two things. One are, there are some foundational things like you you speak that you want the player to think about um, as, as a young kid, as you're developing it, developing it. But then recognizing that in the game, it might not look anything like that. Now, the other side of it, though, is um, from a technique perspective, one area that I do focus a lot on is watching how the athlete moves for inhibitions or restrictions and like clues that they may have that may be leading them towards injury. So they may have, for example, tension or residual tension that is appearing in a compromised movement pattern. So that's where it is useful for checking and really looking at technique. Yeah, in a game where it's chaotic, you're never going to be able to execute perfectly. Like, you mean, yeah, if you want to know how not to do it, you know, watch a pro, um, you know, in the middle of a game, because you rarely get the opportunity to execute. Now and again, it happens. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like with, speed as well and I have this conversation all the time you know there are highlight reels where you see somebody dash 20 meters or 20 yards at max speed 
but tell me how often that happens. It's incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. So for the other 99% of the game, what are you training for? Are you going to train for that in, you know, um, very infrequent opportunity? Or are you going to train for actually creating the space and all of that? So it's like you've got to look at the game and you've got to look at actually what's happening. And I, I do believe that, you know, if you take, take the athlete, make sure that they've got good mobility, good strength, they're fresh, they will find the perfect technique for that moment. Yeah, putting, letting them do what they do best as an athlete, I think, is one of the greatest things. That, that, that is the art of sport, in my opinion. Like, just letting them do what God created them to do. Yeah, and also, like, I mean, so for example, like ankle mobility is, it can be a huge issue with football players. And some, you know, some players do have good mobility and they can get into what we would call an ideal position. But then... Certain guys have maybe have had a legacy, have had an injury, so they may have to externally rotate a little bit more to compromise, or sorry, to facilitate that. And that's okay, so long as we treat them and make sure that it doesn't become a legacy injury. Like, it's just recognizing it's not always possible to get the perfect into the perfect position. Like, some guys who've had a lot of ankle injury and trauma, you know, have to externally rotate to get lower. And so, so, so long as you know that, and you're taking each person individually, but it's like this, it's like the, the eternal argument of ideal sprinting technique it doesn't exist. Everybody has different technique. Otherwise you'd never heard of Michael Johnson. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Well, um, well, yeah, I guess we can kind of move on to another, another little topic. So um, one thing you wrote about in a blog post a few years back was uh I guess discipline, I think it was titled discipline is a myth. Um, if that's, if I'm remembering correctly, and I guess, so it said discipline is what you do at the behest of someone else while self-discipline is when you do it on your own initiative. You talk about having principles over rules and allowing principles to sort of dictate your behavior. And when you're working with, with a team sport of, let's just say 15 guys, have you found any strategies that best foster um, self-discipline or self-motivation when, you know, you're always going to have one or two guys that don't necessarily buy in or might think they're too cool to, to do what the right thing or they're too cool to show up five minutes early. So they walk in if there's a 6:30 AM lift and they walk in at 6:29. that, that kind of thing. Like, have you, have you uh, figured out any strategies that helped foster uh, self-discipline uh, more effectively than others. Well, that sounds like a basketball team I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before before Jocko turns up in my house, um, no, I'm, sure. I'm, not that, I'm not. I'm not saying that there's discipline, but it, it was more stressing the point that you know, particularly for um, for younger people, it's to emphasize that. It's really about your discipline and your self-discipline. And also, particularly in team sports and in collegiate setting, people talk about disciplining someone else. Well, you've lost the argument then. So really, what you're hoping to be able to do is to encourage others to take on that responsibility. And so the goal is with young people is finding out what do they really want to do, like what's truly important to them, and helping them see that having self-discipline is going to get them there. Sometimes you've got kids who want to, you know, want attention or want something. And, and sometimes 
so somebody's turning up late, sometimes what they really want is they, they want you to see them and acknowledge them. That's where it's coming from. And many athletes that we deal with, they just don't have, they maybe, maybe have always strived for recognition. That's been the challenge they've had. And so sometimes you have to tone it back and understand that they want to be seen and heard as young men. Maybe they've never had that. And maybe that's where it's coming from. It's not that they don't care. It's not that they're trying to annoy you. And, you know, the most fundamental thing for most people, they just want to know that they are necessary, that they add value. Sometimes that just means giving people attention. So many kids just don't have that anymore. You do that, you show that you care, then they'll turn up on time. That sounds like, uh, sounds like a true sheepdog. And, uh, and, uh, and it's truest. And which brings me to, to my question for you is, uh, you did recently, you did a Ted talk, uh, and I'm blanking on the, uh, the name of the Ted talk or where you did it. And I apologize. Um, Nashville, maybe I forget. Uh, uh, Nipper, Nipperville. Nipperville. That's right. I knew it started at the end. Could you tell us just basically, cause it has always been a little dream of mine to be able to have the have the cojones to stand up on stage in front of people and talk about something that I've, I, I'm so passionate about. Just how did that feel to stand up on that stage, talk about your passion specifically to all those strangers? Uh, well, <laughs> I would have rather have given a TED talk about something other than a mistake I made. <laughs> well, yeah. But I think it, it was, it was, um, it was really rewarding for me to be able to uh, stand on stage and, and talk about a mistake, a failure, something that, you know, not proud of at all. And to explain the, you know, the mistakes that I made and being able to acknowledge them now, because what happened subsequently where there were so many strength coaches, um, you know, guys from guys and girls from so many other areas who called me, um, you know, to check in and whatever. And they, so many of them shared themselves, you know, being in a similar situation, making silly, stupid mistakes, and just not being able to reach out to other people. And that was that was a lesson I had to learn. I, I learned it the wrong way, learned it the hard way, but it was a really valuable lesson to for me to learn. And I felt that it was a lesson that I could use a mistake to help others. And, um, you know, there are, there's some people who I, I can't really talk, you know, certainly some guys in, in the military who got a huge amount of value from, from that. And that was very humbling for me. Like, I mean, I spoke at a group shortly after that and just having that re recognizing that that made a difference to them. That was really, really helpful for, you know, it was rewarding again for me to be able to use a mistake I'd made. I think it's really, the other thing I think that's really, really important in life is you screw up, you know, run to it, figure it out. You make a mistake because otherwise you're going to spend your life, you spend a lot of time running away from things if you don't figure it out. That's how you get better. I screwed up, I made a mistake and, um, you know, I had to deal with it. I had to own it. Had to, you know, I had to pay the price for it, but I wanted to share why it happened so that others could avoid making the same mistake. And I, and again, it took me a long time. I got seven or eight guys in my phone now who I will call if something comes up. I know to do that now, mm -hmm. but I didn't before. 
And that was really, really, that it was a great lesson for me to learn. I'm just grateful that it wasn't any worse than it was. Um, and grateful that I was able to help others, you know, subsequently. That's the, uh, that's the mark of a true, true human being right there is being able to turn a mistake into a positive, a positive thing for other people, not just yourself. Uh, so. Well, I think, yeah. And also like, look at, we, we keep, I'm going to make lots of other mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. The question is, are you going to learn from them or not? Mm-hmm. Never going to make, yeah. make a mistake like that again, but you, you're going to make mistakes and you know, you, you got to learn for you. If you don't learn from it, you just stay in a, in a position of self-denial and you're just going to continue to just spiral around. You're never going to grow. So make mistakes, make them fast, make them often. Don't make big ones and just keep getting better. And if you can help someone else along the way, do it. I love it. Very cool. Well, we got a few minutes left here. Will, why don't you ask uh, Dr. Connolly our final question? Very good. So, um, just out of respect, I do that. Just out of respect. (laughs) We, uh, we always like to ask our guests if there's anyone they'd recommend that we reach out to, to bring on, um, sometime in the future. Um, and obviously if there's a, if, if someone's going to get an endorsement from you, it's a huge compliment. So who, who would you recommend we reach out to next? Uh, Dan Pop, like, I mean, Don, Don is you know, Dan's a great guy. Like, you I mean, I've known Dan for so many years, but just a really, really good, like, what, what I love about Dan is, like, I mean, we have these discussions and, like, I, I don't know how many times we've texted back and forth today already, maybe 20 times. Mm-hmm. And it's genuinely about trying to solve problems or explore things together. And that's what I love. Like, I mean, and again, he's he's done Far. he's probably done more this morning than I've done in my whole career with athletes and whatever. <laughs> and, but still for him, he's still trying to learn and trying to explore things and share things back and forth. And, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to work with him with different teams and it's um, really humbling. Like, I mean, it's, it's really humbling to be able to work with them on different things, share ideas. Um, it's yeah. Um, 43 now like I mean when I was 15 or 16 if I thought that I would be doing that I would you know yeah I would have laughed at you if you told me I would have had that opportunity so it's just humbling to be able to to work with great people like that very cool awesome very cool well dude thank you so much for uh, your time today oh, thank you for having me we appreciate it's, it, and uh, we will link the your books, all seventeen absolutely. of them. <laughs> yeah, um, let me get. And I, oh, and I'll send you the I'll send you the uh, the Steve Jobs video as well. You can please. Oh, yeah, sweet. Man. We'll throw yeah, we'll yeah. throw that in the show notes and everything. Link that all over the place. Um, we'll put the links to your books Brilliant. and the uh, the YouTube for your TED Talk in there as well. Uh, again, first, thank you for being on, and thank you for every all, all the stuff that you provide uh, for people like us who love performance, who love humans, who love growth and uh, long-term ed- long-term learners. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Let's Thank do you, this again man. sometime. Okay. Absolutely. Sure. We'll have you on, we'll have you on sure. for round two. Why not? Right. <laughs> Maybe by then Will and I will pay for a uh, full on membership. So or for zoom. So we have a longer time. So we got more three minutes. <laughs> guys. All thank right. you. Thank you, brother. Thanks Fergus. Appreciate it.